0: Isaiah 66:15 through 24. See, the Lord is coming with fire, and his chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For the fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment on all men, and many will be those slain by the Lord. Those who consecrate and purify themselves to go into the garden's following one in the midst of those who eat the flesh of pigs, rats, and other abominable things. They will meet their end together, declares the Lord. And I, because of their actions and imaginations, am about to come and gather all nations and tongues, and they will come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and I will send some of those who survived to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans and Lydians, famous as archers, to Tubal and Greece, and to the distant islands that have not yet heard of my fame or seen my glory, they will proclaim my glory among the nations, and they will bring all your brothers, from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem, as an offering to the Lord, on horses, in chariots and wagons and on mules and camels, says the Lord. They will bring them as the Israelites bring their grain offerings to the temple of the Lord in ceremonial, clean vessels and I will select some of them also to be priests and Levites, says the Lord. As the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. From one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. And they will go out and look on all the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. Their worm will not die, nor their fire be quenched and they will be loathsome to all mankind.
1: Thanks, Rob. Good morning. morning. In his uh, marvelous series of children's books, C.S. Lewis, in the Chronicles of Narnia, there's uh, wonderful tales that the children go through and adventures and all kinds of challenges through the seven books. But in the very last book the last battle, things get really, really dark. Forces of evil seem to be winning. The story ends with the good guys being defeated by evil and being forced to go into the stable door, which appears to be a place of terrible judgment. But when they go through that door, what they find is that that door is the way into the new heavens and the new earth, the beautiful new creation that God has made. So the story ends actually with the bad guys being left out and the old world destroyed and the good guys on the inside, living in the joy of the new creation and all its glory in the presence of Aslan, the lion, the Christ figure. As we, close the book of Isaiah today, God, through Isaiah, gives us the end of the story. The end of the story, not just for believers, but the end of the story for every human being who's ever lived. When you read a novel, it's best to wait to the end, right, to find out what happens so that you can be surprised when you get to the end. (laughs) Although some of you cheat, I know, and you read ahead because you can't stand it. (laughs) But for us, God wants us to know the end of the story now so that we can live in this world with its increasing darkness so that we can live with hope and perseverance in the midst of what appears to look like around us that evil is winning way too often. In our world is an amazing diversity of people, isn't it? There's different races, different personalities, different cultures, different languages, different religions, and we could go on and on. There's amazing diversity in the world, different ways of looking at life, etc. But it's important to see, and this is where Isaiah brings us here at the end of the book, as we close the book of Isaiah, he brings us down to show us really There are only two options. Only two possible destinies for every human being on earth. Every human being must go through the fire of Christ coming again. The question is, what's your personal destiny? Will you and I end up on the inside of the new heavens and the the new earth through the stable door, or we will end up on the outside, left out. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this amazing journey we've had through the book of Isaiah as it has really revealed the entire gospel. As from beginning to end, Lord Jesus, you are the center of this book. You are spoken of over and over again as the one who has come, the child who was promised, the one who came to carry our sins as we all like sheep have gone astray and yet God has called the iniquity of us all to fall on you. You have made life available to us. And Lord, as we come before you, may we be open in our hearts about where we really are. And may you use this passage, this time we spend in the Word together today to open up the minds and hearts of any of us here who have not settled that question, who have not given our lives to you, who have not settled the fact that we can spend eternity with you. And may that be settled today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this passage, Isaiah lays out the end of the story, and it's really, again, like I said, only two options. And first, in the beginning and the end of our passage, like like parentheses around the center section, he says, some will go to hell. He's very blind about that, like much of the scriptures tend to be, that some will go to hell. Now I ask you, to consider in your own hearts. Do you believe in hell? According to a recent Pew Research survey who surveyed evangelical Christians, evangelical Christians, those who believe that you have to believe in Jesus to be saved, that he died for you on the cross, who believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, those are some of the characteristics of someone who says, I'm an evangelical. That of the evangelicals, Over a third of baby boomers said they didn't believe in hell. Over a quarter of Generation X doesn't believe in hell of evangelicals. But interestingly enough, almost all millennials do (laughs) who are evangelical. Why is that? Why do some not believe in hell? Well, I think we want to believe in a God who is kind and good and loving and So how could he let some be separated from him forever? And I think some of us baby boomers, as we get closer to the end, we just want to keep our options open, right? (laughs) We want to know we're going to be okay. Interesting that millennials seem to have a higher sense of justice than the rest of us. And so they know that there should be some kind of punishment for those who don't trust Jesus. What's the biblical perspective? Well, Biblically, there's clearly a hell for those who choose separation from God. It's all through the scriptures, but I just want to read a few verses from Jesus' own lips where, actually and remarkably, he quotes our passage today. (laughs) He quotes Isaiah 66, verse 24, in Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 45, he says this, And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Apparently, Jesus believes in hell. (laughs) And then he quotes our passage here, Where their womb does not die and the fire is not quenched. In other words, it's pretty bad. And you... Don't want to go there. <laughs> John Oswald, the commentator, says this. Some may say that this is an unworthy attitude for Christians to believe in hell. But one should remember that the most frequent statements about hell in the Bible come from the lips of Jesus. It's certainly unworthy to hope that the enemies of the gospel will never repent and be saved. We want that. But it is not unworthy to be grateful that there is justice for them if they persist in their enmity towards God. There is a hell. Jesus confirms it. Now, let me just say, there are differences of opinion about what that means. Does it mean eternal punishment that goes on forever and ever and ever? There are verses that support that, but there's also verses that would support a view that Hell is really annihilation. It's the end of existence. But in either case, hell is real. If you choose to not believe in hell because you think, well, it's not fair of God to throw people into hell. For one, we need to realize that what would be fair is if we were all thrown in hell. (laughs) That's what we all deserve, right? and, And we need to remember that and have that attitude. And if you if you say, well, I just don't believe in it, that doesn't change the reality of the fact that it's true. Scriptures teach teach that it's true. (laughs) You might think it's not fair for gravity to keep pulling you down, and therefore, I'm not going to believe in it. But that doesn't allow you to fly. (laughs) And if you step off a cliff, you will go splat, whether you believe in gravity or not, because it's real. God is either, you see... Just and loving, just and loving, or he is neither one. You can't have one without the other because you see, to think that God's just, he's just loving and not just and can't ultimately have to deal with evil would be foolish because evil is. And sin are destructive. They destroy lives. And so it would not be loving of a God to say, Oh, I'm just going to tolerate sin as it continues to destroy people's lives. That would not be love. So ultimately, God has to judge evil. He has to judge sin. He must destroy it because He is a loving God. Why does He allow it to go on at the moment? Well, we're told in Romans 2 because God is kind and patient and He desires everyone to come to the joy of what we were created for, which is the relationship with Him. And so He's biding His time, giving us time to come to Him and to share the good news with those who don't know Him. So how does Isaiah describe hell? Verse 15, For behold, the Lord will come in fire (laughs) and his chariots like the whirlwind. He describes in these couple of verses at the beginning here that hell is like a fire. A fire consumes, it burns. And he says it's like chariots and a sword. In other words, like warfare, destruction, the kills. That's what he says hell will be like. Some may say, well, there's so much judgment in the Old Testament. Well, actually, uh, as we've already seen, Jesus talks more about hell than, than anyone else in the Scripture. And there are at least 12 references in the New Testament that I found of the fire of judgment coming in the New Testament. So clearly, it's everywhere in the Scriptures. Who has to face the fire of judgment? Verse 16, for... For by fire the Lord will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with whom? With all flesh. All flesh. In other words, all human beings will face the fire of God's judgment. Even believers will go through the fire. But either that fire will consume us in judgment because we've rejected him, or... That fire which the judgment was poured on Jesus, the fire will cleanse us as believers. Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 as he's talking to believers, as he's talking about believers, and as he says uh, this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 11 For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day, the day of the Lord's coming, will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss although he himself will be saved, rescued, but only as through fire. In other words, for a believer, you are saved, but whether you've done what you've done in dependence on Jesus, trusting him or in your own strength will determine what gets burned up and what stays, but it will be a purification process for every one of us. We will all, all go through the fire. But who ends up being judged by the fire? who ends up ultimately in what the Bible calls hell. Verse 17 tells us, Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination, and rats or mice, depending on your translation, shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. What's he describing here? Different acts of pagan worship. Pagan religion. In other words, what Isaiah is saying here is either you worship Yahweh, the true God, you give your life to him and you bow down before him as your creator, or you worship something else. And that something else could be a, a, an idol, a literal idol like many throughout history, or it could be an idol, some kind of other thing you worship, whether money or yourself, or sex, or on and on. We're very creative about finding things to worship, aren't we, as human beings? Other than God. But that's it. That's who ends up being judged, is whoever chooses to not worship the true God, but to worship something else. I will follow, I will trust in something else. And ultimately, it's always a worship of self, because it's trying to keep yourself On the throne. You see, if you don't worship the true God here on earth, God will give you what you choose, which is eternity apart from Him. God, in His freedom, He gives us, says, I will give you what you choose. If you choose you don't want to worship Me, then that's what you will get life without Me for eternity. So in verse 24, as he ends this section, as the other bookend, the end of the whole book of Isaiah, when Jesus quotes this, about the worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. What's he saying? He's saying, you know what? This is pretty bad. You don't want to go there. <laughs> you do not want to go there. You were not created for that. You were created for worship of God and God being whole and fulfilled and complete in his presence and in a relationship with him. So you don't want to go there. So Isaiah begins and ends this last section with these bookends of judgment. As if to say, these are the outside. This is being on the outside. And you don't want to be on the outside. You want to be at the center of what God offers you. And that's... The rest of the passage, verses 18 through 23, which some will go to hell, but the rest will worship God forever. Notice how Isaiah begins this section, 18 through 23, about worship of God, where he says, For I know, now he's just been talking about judgment, right? And he says, I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. I don't know about you, but that sounds ominous. That sounds like more judgment. And they shall come and they shall see my glory and I will set a sign among them. So what's he saying here? He sounds like he's building it up to judgment, which we all know we deserve it. Deep down, deep down, we know we've fallen short of the glory of God, every one of us. And ultimately, we deserve hell. That's what we deserve. Because we have walked away from worship of the true God. But Isaiah lays out a condensed version of the gospel, the whole plan of salvation in a couple verses here, which is wonderful. He says, for I will set a sign. Now, this is written 700 years before Christ came, right? What is this sign? Well, again, commentators differ on this, but I think Isaiah is thinking of Jesus because he uses the same word back in Isaiah chapter 7, As Isaiah offers Ahaz, King Ahaz, a sign, and Ahaz refuses to choose a sign, and so Isaiah gives him one. Verse 14 of chapter 7. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Same word as in 66. Behold, here's the sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call him Emmanuel. What's the sign? It's Jesus. <laughs> and then he's explained in, cha- in the Servant Songs, especially in chapters 52 and 53, where it says he took on our sin. He is the sign of life. And if we look to him, if we look to the sign, just like looking to a road sign to go the right direction, if we look to him as the sign and trust in him, then we go in the right direction. We follow him, we trust him. He gives us life. John Oswald again says this, This is the great good news of Isaiah. God has entered into our judgment and taken it on himself. And because of that, he can declare that finally nothing can keep us from his love except our own determination to persist in rebellion. The cosmos will be remade. And to all eternity it will ring with the praises of those who, though walking in darkness, they've seen a great light. So the plan of salvation is God sends the sign. And if we look to the sign, we are rescued. We have life. That's the sense of verse 19. Notice what he says. And I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors. Some translations say refugees, refugees. To the nations, to Tarshish, Pole, and Lud, to who, those who draw the bow, etc., etc. In other words, to all the ends of the earth. So, what's he described here? That when we look to the sign, we become survivors, refugees. Interesting, that's how he describes us, isn't it? Those who have looked to Jesus. But isn't it true? We've been rescued like, like a refugee who has escaped out of the war zone. When we put our faith in Jesus, we escape from that path that leads only to darkness, eternal darkness. And then he takes those survivors, those refugees, and sends them to all the nations to declare his glory. We are to be witnesses of what he has done in saving us. Not because we're better, but because we're simply beggars that have been rescued. (laughs) And we're helping others know where we found food. So we're each called, every one of us who puts our faith in Jesus, we're each called to see ourselves as refugees. Not as better than anyone else, but somebody who's just escaped the darkness. We're survived. We've been given life and we need to tell the world, Hey, here's how you find it. Here's how you can escape the darkness. That's really what the word saved means in the New Testament, but it, we've watered it down so much, we, we forget what it really means. It means to be rescued, delivered. So this plan to send refugees, survivors, to all the world began with the apostles, didn't it? Where God scattered them, and then the early disciples scattered, and our we are called to wherever we are and wherever God scatters us to share the good news, to declare his glory, it says, to all the ends of the earth. I love the fact we have a strong global outreach program here at Cole, where we have a heart for the nations. We want people all over the world to come to know him, and a third of our budget is put into that so that can happen. And we have not only global outreach but global outreach, global reaching out to those whom God has brought here, especially refugees who understand what it means to be a refugee. (laughs) We're refugees too. So let me share the good news with you. That's the plan. That's God's idea. And notice what he says, that we can share that good news with all the nations in all kinds of ways. Verse 20, "...and they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord." On horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on camels. To my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord. I, I really love that picture of how people are coming in all kinds of ways. And isn't God good to bring people to him in all kinds of ways into the family of God? Your brothers, it says, they shall bring your brothers. And they can come through social media or through dreams or through testimonies. But let's just be honest, most of us here in this room, if we had an opportunity to say, here's how I came to Christ, would say we came through a family member or a friend through a personal relationship, right? And that should be an encouragement to us, that if people are going to come to Christ, they need to have us as friends. They need to hear the truth from us. They need to know we're believers and that we've been rescued and that, We want them to be rescued as well so that we can come together and worship as one big family. Verse 21, And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. A beautiful picture here of people from all nations coming together and then worshiping. And we can learn about worship from anybody from any kind of background. If they know Jesus, all these different cultures, it's, it's a wonderful thing. To learn how to worship God in different ways from other people, I was on a mission trip a number of years ago in Pakistan, and we were there in this worship service and they were they'd memorized the psalms and they were calling out a psalm a psalm a number of a psalm, and then they would sing it because they had it memorized they were their music was very different they were banging metal poles together and all kinds of things for the rhythm and But they were singing their hearts out. And at one point they called Psalm 43. They're singing their own language, so I couldn't understand, but they began singing, and they were worshiping God with all their hearts to the tune of Oh My Darling Clementine. (laughs) (laughs) And I was struck by that, but you know what? I learned a lot about worship from that. As I entered in, even though I couldn't understand the words, as they praise God for how great He is that we can worship God and learn from all kinds of people. And then in verse 22 and 23, he encourages us that we'll all be one family, all worshiping God together. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. Your offspring, your family, this new family of God, from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. All who are left at that point will come together and worship from all over. Uh, I love this picture that we have up front of this new heavens and new earth, that it's about us together worshiping. Will nature be incredible? Yes. But what's most important about the new heavens and new earth is The people of God gathered together, different genders, different races, different cultures, different backgrounds, all together, worshiping God. It's the same picture that's given in the book of Revelation. I just want to read one section from the book of Revelation in chapter 5 as everybody is gathered together worshiping him, starting in verse 11 of Revelation 5. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and honor, and glory, and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Every creature in heaven and earth gathered together, worshiping him. That is God's longing for all mankind, is that we might become what we were created to be, in proper relationship with God, in proper relationship with one another, worshiping him together. The description again of Oswald says this. That then is why the Bible ends on the same kind of note. Revelation ultimately describes one continuing service of worship. What's going on? Is the God of the universe some megalomaniac who constantly needs to be told how great he is? (laughs) Hardly. The point is that our life is not about us. Just as the life of each member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is not about himself, all too easily we think that the next life is a place where we are rewarded, where we finally get the goodies, where we are blessed. Not true. Just as here, where the greatest blessings of life are when we become part of something greater than us, so it will be in the next life when we are taken up into the glory and wonder of the Creator, when we lose ourselves in the joy and love that radiates from Him, when we know what it is to be united with, but not absorbed into, the one whose greatest delight is in us whom He has made, then we will have truly found ourselves forever. Beautiful picture, isn't it? Amen. That's what we were created for. So that's the end of the story for all eternity. And yet, really, it's the beginning of the story, isn't it? (laughs) We begin to see that life here was just a blip, and eternity is worshiping together, worshiping him forever. So the question is, for each of us, what will be the end of your story? Are you on the outside like like the peel of an orange that gets tossed? (laughs) Or are you on the inside? The inside that gets to be with God and worship him forever. And if you haven't made that choice yet, will you choose life forever with God, the God who loves you and died for you? Or will you choose life apart from him in the hell of your own choosing? It's up to each one of us. God gave us the freedom to choose. He took your punishment on himself out of love for you, and all you have to do is receive that gift. I like the way Ray Ortlund put it. Hell was not prepared for you, but for the devil. Hell was not prepared for you, but for the devil. Heaven was prepared for you. But all you have to do to go to hell forever is stay on your present course of self-salvation. But if you want to experience what you were created for, what God created for you, the heaven, it's simply choosing Him. In Romans chapter 10, the Apostle Paul says, whoever, whoever, will confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You shall be saved. That's all it takes. Jesus, I believe you're Lord. And I believe in your heart that you were raised from the dead. For me, you took my sins. That's all it takes, he says, for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus, of course, describes salvation in a number of ways, but the famous verse, John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, if you call on his name, you can become one of the rescued ones, one of the survivors, one of the refugees, because that's all we are. We don't get chosen because we're better. We have just come to him and said, okay, Lord, I give up. And he rescues us. Last week we heard about Clay Binford. We prayed for it again today, but just let me retell the story a bit how Clay got a brain tumor and he had seizures and he was ready to go in to have surgery and they'd already hooked him up. He was, they did a quick MRI so they could pinpoint exactly where the tumor was and then they rolled him into surgery and he already was being put to sleep by these IVs and they stopped the procedure. And the doctor came in and said, the tumor is gone. Amen. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) Praise God for that. Yeah. Yeah. Two days later, Clay went home. He's had no more seizures. He's doing great. But the real miracle of that, you know, Clay eventually will have more health problems and he eventually will die because we all do. But I believe that's meant to be a picture to all of us, that the cancer of sin that is eating us alive, God wants to remove that from us. And only he can do it by turning to him as our life. And we all have to do that. We all have to ultimately make that choice. I had to do that at age 17. If you'd looked at my life, you would have said, man, he's pretty much got it together. I had... Financial security, I had status, I was well-liked, I was, did well in school, all those things. But inside, I had a black hole of loneliness and brokenness and sin and self-centeredness that I could not deal with. And a friend shared the gospel with me, and I knew that's what I needed. And I gave my heart to Jesus, and it's been a lot of ups and downs since then. But you know what? That black hole is gone. It's gone that cancer. And so Jesus offers that to everyone here. So I want to close us in prayer and I want to share a prayer of salvation. If you've never given your heart to Jesus, please, today is the day of salvation. Today's the day to pray this prayer with me. And then I'll pray the prayer, a prayer for the rest of us. So if you've never given your heart to Jesus, please do it now. Pray this prayer with me. And then please, Let someone know. Come and tell me. Email me some way. Let us know so we can help you begin to walk with him. So pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, thank you that you loved me enough to die for me, that the cancer of sin could be removed from my life and I could be forgiven and be restored to what I was made to be. that I was made for relationship with the God who made me the creator. So, Lord, I thank you. I receive the gift of salvation. Help me now learn to walk with you. I pray in Jesus' name. And for the rest of us, let me pray. Lord, thank you that we are but refugees. We don't have it together, but you have called us and we have been rescued from the darkness into a relationship with you. May we be worshipers of you that welcome the world into our circle of worship and that declare the good news to others that the sign has come. Jesus has come. Please join us as the family of God. May we be good witnesses of what you have done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.